Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, Lainey. It's Duanna. How are you? Uh, well, um, I'm good. This is Show Your Work, and that's quite a... I'm intrigued. Why Why the tone? Well, okay, because this is the thing about show your work. Like, the whole point of it is supposed to be show, right? And expose, share. Um, and so I have a bit of a bone to pick with you. Okay. You have this whole thing about, like, oh, I'm done my Christmas shopping in July. <laughs> and so I want to know, like, first of all, well, here's my biggest question. What does that mean? Oh, I'm done in July. Like you just decide on things and you go with it? Yes. But what happens when like two weeks to Christmas you uh, realize that this other thing is totally better for somebody? No. What do you mean no? Like, like it's, expand. I The thing that I have decided on is like the thing because I've already spent weeks deciding on it. Like even though I might buy it in July and August, I've been eyeing it since like May. But what if it didn't release until like mid-November? Are you just immune to things? No, I'm not immune to things. I just, I think that part of good gift giving is being decisive. That's your problem because you have always had FOMO, fear of missing out. So that for you has translated into, oh, what if something else is better? If you are decisive and you believe in the quality and the uh, perfectness of your gift, there's no question. It's like having a partner. You know, if you meet somebody in May and she or he is perfect for you, are you going to be like, nah, I don't know, because someone might come in July around and I might meet them at a coffee shop or go for donuts somewhere and, like, I shouldn't date this guy because, like, I'm just going to wait until maybe something will happen will come up in April. Okay, August. it's a flawed argument because – well, it's maybe it's not a flawed argument because in the case of a partner, you make compromises. Everybody makes compromises. Uh, and I kind of reject the assertion that you can get the perfect gift for every single person on your list, here's the key, year after year. You, like, the thing uh, that's going to make them sob and look at you with shining eyes and, oh my God, I didn't know my heart was walking around, like, available on Amazon. How have you done this? This is amazing. Well, that's the thing. Like, there are only two people on my list that I need to make sob. Everybody else is going to, like, get a nice gift. They don't need to sob about it. But, like, then <laughs> Like, how is are that you... what you've been doing? That everyone on your list has to sob and well, write an sob. essay about the quality of the gift you get them? I have – no, I'm not saying that that's what's going on. I'm saying that that is – like, with all due respect, when you say I'm a great gift giver, that's yes. the – that's what we're assuming here, that everybody is, yes, rendered to tears and belief in the renewal of the spirit and doves flying everywhere because of the beauty of what was unwrapped under the tree. I, yeah. I think that your dramatization of it is not my definition of it. Me being a great gift giver means that everybody, anybody who gets a gift from me is going to be super happy with it. And it's going to like rank in the top three of gifts that they've received from all people in general that season. 
That's it. But it doesn't have to be life-changing. Well, but how good can it be then? If it's just something that you know they're going to like, then that's not even a challenge. That's just like, I got a good thing. Oh, I'm, it's not only something that I know they're going to like, it's something that no one else is going to think to get them. But see, that is the issue to me. Is the uh, That is what was ingrained in me from youth, is that you have to think of something that is more importantly than you know, something they'll like more importantly than something that is great to get. It has to be something that is original and so creative and goddamn thoughtful. And that's where I, I'm having trouble with your rationale here. Because on the one hand, you're like, yeah, they're going to love it. It's going to be the best gift they've gotten. But on the other hand, you're like, no, they're not going to be rendered like speechless and delighted. So there's a fallacy here. No, I, I don't think it's a fallacy. I think that like, I think that you, your, your positioning of it is pretty rigid. It's it's, it's going to be a really, really great gift, and no one else is going to have thought to get them that gift, but it doesn't have to change, like, the molecular makeup of their body. But then you have to top it every year. So are you topping it every year? Do certain people get better rankings than others? No, I don't top it every year. I just make sure that every year my gift is, like, again, within the top three of the gifts that other people are going to get them. And the way I do that is, you know, most people start their gift giving, as you know, or as we say probably most people, probably around Black Friday, right? Generously, I'll say mid-November, most people start thinking about it. No, I don't think that. But yeah, okay. Like, I don't even think people think about it that soon. Okay, okay. great. So like, when people give themselves only two weeks to finish up their gift giving, naturally, the pressure of the gift giving and then the merchandise that's available is probably going to be the same. So for if you're saying and you agree that most people leave it to like the last three weeks generously. Yeah, I'm not including myself there, but sure. yes, most people. Then sure. most people within a certain community are all looking at the same merchandise. So you could say it would not be out of ordinary. It would not be impossible to think that in like a two block radius, certain people would get the same thing because they're all picking from the same pool at the same amount of time during that shopping section. In theory. I'm picking all year. Yeah, but you're picking, like, but that's does that excludes, like, cheese of the month clubs and, like, you know, I don't know, donations to goats in developing countries okay. and whatever. Cheese I, of the month club. I'm not buying cheese for someone for their people, gift. People, somebody likes that. Obviously, somebody goes that way for gifts. If you have to buy something for a, you know, a second aunt-in-law or something uh, for 25 years, sooner or later you're going to come up against cheese. Can't you agree, though, that since I start way earlier and given that in starting earlier my selection is invariably going to be more varied, that would be at least one reason why my gifts are going to be better than other people but who see, only select within a two-week, like, span? I think you're talking about, like, brick-and-mortar stores which is crazy to me. No, I don't just, but that's the thing. I mean, I talk about brick and mortar stores because those, that's what most people who leave it to the last three weeks are going to. Ah, see, I strongly disagree there. I think most uh, people who slack are saved by a giant Amazon cart that is delivered two days after you press send. And it's still all on Amazon that anyone can access. Like, I mean, I think when I say brick and mortar, I basically mean Amazon now. I don't mean like walking up to the storefront, but it's basically the merchandise that is on Amazon.com or on whatever website.com that is available from December 1st to December 21st. Okay. So let's just 
like leave the logistics of where we're acquiring these golden nuggets here for a second. Here's my final final question here. Do you then, in order to like maintain your belief that you are this, you know, amazing gift giver, how often do you need to see the person using the gift? How many more times do they have to mention it to you after the fact? Mm, none. Oh, see, then we have different ideas about what constitutes a great gift. Yeah, like in the moment, I like it, and then I move on because I have more gifts to give other people. And now I have to start looking for like, you know, people's birthday gifts for next year. I'll give you an example. The gifts that I've bought for a series of colleagues, um, I purchased them in August in Vancouver with Fiona, uh-huh. who is here and yeah, listening yeah. And- and she was like, okay, it's August. And yeah. I was like, oh, no, but this would be perfect. But what makes it so perfect? And I get that you yeah. don't want to out your gift, yeah. but… It is perfect because these gifts were specific to Vancouver. So they were made in Vancouver, designed in Vancouver. So given that the recipients of this gift are not based in Vancouver, that in and of itself is special. And then they have a unique… Uh, quality about them that is perfect for the group that's receiving them. Sorry. Four people are receiving them. Let's just pause here. We're going to, you guys just like listen to this beautiful music for a second. I'm going to find out what this object is and then I'm going to render my, my verdict. Okay, we're back. And so I've heard uh, the story of the gift and I, you know, I agree that it sounds really unique and really unusual. But I think that to me, you know, I think that what we're talking about here is actually like whether one can anoint oneself a good gift giver or whether you have to be anointed by the recipient. Because I think if those well-chosen gifts are never seen again mm-hmm. in in your interactions with people… Oh, uh, did I say that? Did I say that they're not seen again? I'm suggesting that if they weren't, that… Oh, yeah. …that… I would feel like, well, they weren't such great gifts after all. Oh, no, they're seen. How do you know? Well, for example, the same group of people, the same group of people that I talked about, like, where we had to shut down and I told you what their gifts were. Last year, I got them gifts from a jewelry company. Mm-hmm. Um, of, like, they all got a similar pair of earrings. Mm-hmm. And... That jewelry company, six months later, took off and became the jewelry line that everybody was wearing, and they all wear those earrings all the time, constantly, on television. Okay. So let's… This is where we sort of are here. Are you a good gift giver because you think something up and pick it up, or because everybody loves it and has the, like, shining eyes of opening world peace under the tree? Or is it just like a high five and a good gift? Uh, What do you think? What is your style? Please, if you are like, I think consumerism is really dumb, um, that's actually fine. But also tell me what you got for your mother-in-law. I would just like to know that also. Um, Oh, and I got my mother-in-law a great gift when we were on holiday in the Dominican. Like, I mean, it wasn't on my mind to be in the Dominican to be buying gifts and Christmas presents. But again, because my mindset is always set to be the greatest gift giver, I'm I got so her the generous. best gift. Like, I got her the best gift. Even Yasek could not deny that I got his mother the best gift. Yeah, but the tr- the proof is in the Christmas morning. Oh, if- trust me. She is going to weep. 
If you want, actually, there, there we go. You wanted weeping? I do. Oh, she is going to weep. Okay. Let me tell you what I got her because she's not. she doesn't listen to this podcast. Okay, here we go. There's so a lot my, riding on this. My mother-in-law is Polish and 80% of Poland is Catholic. So she is devoutly Catholic, goes to Sunday service all the time. Mass. Mass is what we say. Okay, sorry. Goes to mass all the time. And um, so… There is a stone that is indigenous to the Dominican Republic. You can't get it anywhere else. Oh my God, with the can't get it anywhere else. Go you on. No, seriously. I, I got it. It's the, like, it's only available in the Dominican Republic. And I got her a crucifix made of this stone. I mean, like, I, I want, I want, to, if you guys could see me, I am kissing, you know, the thing where you go, like, you. Your, Something tastes so yeah, good and you kiss your fingers. Chef's fingers. If you I will. mean, this, she is gonna like literally, she, she, if I wish, I, mean, I would fly to Vancouver to present it to her because she is going to, I mean, and she cries easily. I'll give you that. But she's gonna, she's really gonna get emotional. Okay. Yeah. I um, mean, you know, if you have somebody who appreciates that a stone is only available somewhere else, uh, and who is, you know, into decorative crucifixes, then you can fly to the Dominican even as we speak to pick this up. Um, I'm going to keep my skeptical face on. I'm not sure I've been convinced. Uh, but on the other hand, you are even more convinced of your greatness and gift giving. So, um, you know, that's that's fine. That's where we begin. The stone is called Larimar, by the way. Um, native stone of the Dominican Republic. Um, crucifix of that exclusive stone to the Dominican Republic. I just want to point out that this also makes you excruciating to even think about gifts in the region of. And let's just leave that there. What do you mean? Okay. Like, it's hard to shop for me? Obviously. Oh, yeah, I know that. I don't want anyone shopping for me. I know, but that's a ridiculous <laughs> premise, and we're going to leave that Nobody here. Nobody should talk- ever shop for me. Can we talk about somebody who's a little more reasonable? <laughs> okay. Yes. Let's do it. Let's get into the show. No, no, that was a great segue. You can be like, yeah, sure, let's. Let's. Um, actually, I don't know. Is this person reasonable? I assume so. I would like to think so. I want her to be. So our top story is kind of a surprise to us. Uh, you sent me this article uh, pointing out uh, – an article and a podcast, really uh, – pointing out that Selena Gomez is Billboard's Woman of the Year. Yes. Which is a really interesting award to have. Is there a man of the year? Uh, I don't know if Billboard does a man of the year. I know that if they did do a man of the year, it certainly doesn't get the play that woman of the year does. I remember um, the Billboard woman of the year always happening in November. Like it is a, like it's becoming a tradition every year. Like who was last year? Um, Katy Perry. I believe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, listen, I can tell you who they've named over the last few years. Like, Beyonce has gotten it. Madonna's gotten it. Katy Perry's gotten it. Um, so, yeah, it it is something that I, like, it's a, it's a brand of billboards that I recognize. Sure. Okay. And the other part about it that has been so interesting, or the first thing that struck me, of course, uh, which, you know, is the thing that we talk about all the time, is... Selena Gomez is, by all accounts, a woman, but it's hard to think of her as that uh, that way. Whether or not this is fair, the common observation about Selena Gomez is that she has this 
gorgeous, adorable baby face. And she is 25 years old right now, but she could easily pass for 18 and will probably keep passing for 18 for another 10 years. Right. And so when you talk about a title, an honor, like woman of the year, that's why I sent it to you. And I, you tell me if, if it's unfair because yes, she is a woman. It's just that I do believe that a lot of people still see her as a girl. Sure. And there's so many reasons for that. You know, I have a friend who uh, is a pretty serious connoisseur of comedy who maintains that Selena Gomez is the most unsung comedic actress of her generation. Uh, And he bases this, of course, on her line deliveries and et cetera on Wizards of Waverly Place, uh, which is where or one of the places where she got her start, her Disney sitcom. But he basically believes, uh, you know who you are if you're listening, that she's operating heads and shoulders and lives above anybody else who's even getting better roles than that. Uh, and that she's essentially operating in a, as a woman in that way. But a lot of people remember her from Wizards of Waverly Place where she was a teenager, kind of Mm -hmm. an everlasting teenager. She is currently, maybe, probably, actually dating Justin Bieber, who was her teenage boyfriend, right? Like, he was the one, I always have memories of, of she was 20 and he was 18, which that couldn't always have been true because they were together probably before and after that moment in time. But I have this very clear image and like tabloid pics and going, okay, I guess I'm looking at a bikini picture of a teenager now. Oh, she's 20. Okay, interesting. Um, She seems eternally teenage because of, of, yeah, that romance with Justin Bieber. She seems eternally teenage because, you know, I think about the whole like triangle romance between she and Demi Lovato and uh, Taylor Swift when like Taylor Swift was maybe accused of of taking away Demi Lovato's best friend, which is such a teenager thing to happen. Yeah. Um, And maybe she hasn't made that many headlines as a woman. Like, is that a fair assumption or assessment? I think she's made her share of headlines this year, which – obviously, is why she was named Billboard Woman of the Year. But it is a really interesting thing that you bring up, your friend and his attachment connection to Selena Gomez on Waverly Place, because I'm not sure beyond the people who grew up watching Wizards of Waverly Place starring Selena Gomez, how many of us think of her first as an actor? Agreed. Right? Yeah. And I, you know, and I... Uh, out of context, hearing you say back, oh, your friend who, you know, loves Wizards of the Waverly Place, it sounds kind of gross. Uh, but I say this with as much as any of us can say about this. Like, he means it in the most comedically pure way. Yeah, you're right. Most people don't think of her as an actress, although that's kind of where she came from. I mean, if you really want to get down to it, and this I have looked up, she got her start on Barney. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, jury's out on whether that's a singing or an acting debut because, yep. of course, that show was all about, like, Moppet singing and dancing and kind of proto-training for the Mickey Mouse Club that wasn't there for them. No, you're right. I primarily associate Selena Gomez with music. Um, I know several of her songs. I have them on my playlists. And if you were to ask me to 
think of um, a Selena Gomez acting example, the only one I could give you off the top of my head is Spring Breakers, mm. which is Harmony Kareen's movie, quite acclaimed. Like, there's there are a lot of people who, like, throw down for that movie. They They quite like it. Did you see it? I didn't. I okay. read it. Again, yeah. this is my refrain. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, no, I know that was a real choice for her was to yes. go be in that. When I think of Selena Gomez as an actress, uh, Waverly Place aside, I think of the two minutes that she was in The Big Short. You know, we talked about Margot Robbie's appearance in that movie last week and uh, it was, you know, a big movie about big money. Uh, it's an adult concept and to have her there in an evening dress, I think she was in a casino, uh, delivering her lines about, yeah. you know, kind of… It was a red dress, right? Am I… Oh, I see. I remember a black dress, but, you know. Yeah. Um, but about, like, you know, the the shortfalls in the yes. subprime mortgages yes. and whatnot. Um, so it's a big deal to be an adult person who's there to deliver adult information. Right. The fact that they put it in the mouths of beautiful women so that people would pay attention is, you know another gross topic for another time. But that points to her being an adult also. Mm -hmm. And that was a good couple of years ago. Yeah. And yet the teenage image kind of persists. It does. And maybe this is a discussion for another time or a thesis for another time. But is it because as actors, you get to grow into another character? You get to wear skin that gives an illusion of aging Whereas in music, um, especially the kind of sound of music that Selena Gomez is into, like it's EDM, it's poppy, there is almost a you get fixated in a moment of time. No, it's it's um it's well, a it's, it almost preserves you in in it, it's it preserves your youth. The thing about music that is interesting is that yeah, almost unless you're Adele. Well, I was, well, but even Adele, right? Because Adele launched right at adult contemporary, even at 19. That's right. She and was, it was adult contemporary. Yeah, she was never a punk. She was never singing like pop, like, yep. let's all be in the club and I'm feeling 22. Like, she yeah. was always singing. That's a good song, Duanna. Are you going to? Adult music. Whatever. <laughs> like, I, I. No, I really liked it. <laughs> um, you know, I think that, yeah, music, almost musical genres are almost associated with given ages. I bet that if we sat here, we could kind of go through any given genre and go, oh, that's immediately post-college. Yeah. This is this. And of course, uh, you know, our ideas about that are informed by where we were at certain times when certain things broke. And, you know, not everybody, I think, thinks of grunge as being associated with grade eight, but that's sort of when, from whence I come. But yeah, music does kind of stay in time a little bit. Acting does too, though, because of course, one of our favorite things to talk about is Julia Roberts at, certainly at 20 in Pretty Woman, but even in the roles that she took before that, even in, I think if you look at the Julia Roberts filmography, I think she shot Mystic Pizza, mm -hmm. certainly before Pretty Woman. I believe she shot Steel Magnolias before Pretty Woman. Yes. And she's a woman in both of those movies, yes. which she was 19 and 20 when those movies were shot. Yes. She was always a woman. Always a woman. I mean, we had this, yeah, we touched on this last week with Margot Robbie. That right. Margot Robbie also feels like she's always been, like I've never seen her in a girlish way the way we've seen Jennifer Lawrence. That was our comparison. Sure. And so to extrapolate that to Selena Gomez, uh, you know, 
she's not hurting for not being seen as a woman, I guess is the thing. No. Uh, you know, she is seen as a woman in the big short or by Billboard as their woman of the year. Uh, and I will admit that dating the weekend, which she is no longer doing, seems like something that a woman does and not a girl. However, that may have been the maybe one benefit of dating the weekend. Sure. It aged her up. Yeah. But this is what's so interesting is if you are, you know, the adages about needing to be young in Hollywood, don't go away. Um, Everybody will age. So nobody ever really needs to be older, like just add time. But it's always good to seem younger to be younger. Uh, And I wonder if she kind of courts it a little bit. Uh, So, for example… Like leans into her youthfulness? Yeah. Yeah. And kind of goes back and forth. When you talked about the kind of mournful performance that she gave uh, a couple of weeks ago at the… American Music Awards. You know, I sort of logged on and saw the images that you were talking about and the pouty face. But what I was most struck by was the unwashed bad dye job. Mm-hmm. Um, and the unwashed bad dye job, the blonde, that bad dye job with the roots showing and the kind of greasiness, um, you know, I know it's a look, but it also reeks of having done it in your dorm room. Selena Gomez has all the money in the world, but she looks as though she kind of did something on the fly. That's kind of arguably deliberate to me. I I really like where you're going with this because… When Billboard is naming Selena Gomez Woman of the Year, they're looking at what we saw of Selena Gomez all year, right? And we've actually talked about Selena Gomez before on Show Your Work in season one. And we talked about her um, because she executive produced 13 Reasons Why. Yes. One of the most successful series of 2017 if you only want to base it on that statistic that very famously came out shortly after the series dropped, which was its Twitter activity, its social media activity. It became the highest trending or high, like most mentioned TV show or series um, on Twitter of all time. It broke all these records. So, yeah. And I'll take that. I will fully take that. Um, And you say executive produced, which can mean all kinds of things as we know, but She's not in it. It was not a, you know, a vehicle for her in any way. It wasn't something that she made because she wanted the role for herself. No, but by association, to your point, we don't see her as a 40-year-old making a show about teenagers. We see her as quite a youthful person who must understand still, because she's still close to the era, the perspective of a teenager, the angst of a teenager. Yeah, but that's why I think it's better, more interesting that she exec produced it without being into it. Selena Gomez could still play a teenager. Mm-hmm. Had she said, I want to play Hannah, I think the character is Hannah, probably, um, she could have done so. Anybody would have greenlit it. Uh, but to exec produce it without being in it is a business decision. It's a forward-thinking decision. It's interesting. It is interesting. And I think um, what is is even more interesting is that that was really near the beginning of the year of the Selena Gomez 2017 news cycle where it's almost not even mentioned anymore, 13 Reasons Why. Mm-hmm. That's number one, how quickly our news cycle goes these days. But also, she's had a year. So she started dating The weekend. 
13 Reasons Why. They show up the Met Gala together. Um, she's got a few hit songs out this like the, through the summer. The Kidney Transplant. Well, I want to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, because the Kidney Transplant is, I can't remember the last time. Uh, obviously, Selena Gomez is not the only star in Hollywood, not the only star in Hollywood under 40 or whatever to have a health issue, right? And a, a not to categorize, but a health issue that is not, uh, you know, exhaustion or addiction that is euphemized another way. Right. But she talked about it so openly and so uh, candidly. What do you think that did for her, for her image? Did that change something or was it just a cherry on top? Well, number one, to, to your point or that original point that we've been talking about, about youthfulness and gradual maturing, I do think that health problems are not typically associated with the eternal youth, of right? Of course, yeah. So there is something about, unfortunately, I mean, we of course don't mean to be talking about this insensitively. There is something about what she went through physically that did grow her up a little bit. When you suffer physically, certainly emotionally, there is a corresponding journey, a corresponding evolution. Well, and there's also the, you know, life's too short, basically, yes. right? That you want to get stuff done. That Time an, is running out. Yeah. There's an yeah. increased sense of, I got to go while the going right. is good. So on that point, definitely, I think it moved her forward in a way that we saw her differently. We're like, oh my God, she's not going to be forever 16. She was sick. This happened to her. I do think it changed a little bit our perspective of her. Um, in terms of other ways that we saw her in how she communicated her message, how, as you said, how she was so forthcoming with it, how she was so candid about it. I, I, I do think that Right now, and especially over the last two years, she's been candid about everything. Her struggles with mental health, she talked about throwing away her phone essentially and going to rehab or to treatment, right? And she disappeared really for several months last year. So this is somebody who really wears her vulnerability. But it always seems controlled. You know, uh, the the transplant… We found out about it because she told us. Yes. Um, because she tweeted that picture of mm -hmm. the two of them in the beds holding hands, really touching. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and there's something to be said for getting out in front of that story and so forth. But she could have been, to your point, underground for a few more weeks and nobody would have blinked. I guess what I'm asking is, is there a, you know, a benefit to saying it in so many words? Maybe that's just who she is. Maybe she's just upfront and candid. But is there something that can be incorporated into a brand that I'm going to be upfront about this kind of thing? Well, I'm sorry to do this, but let me answer your question with a question because we're talking about work here. Yeah. Who are her contemporaries? This is what's so interesting, mm -hmm. right? Because she had several contemporaries. Selena Gomez came up with Miley Cyrus and Demi Lovato and the Jonas Brothers and Taylor Swift and uh, some others that I'm sure I'm forgetting who kind of fell off along the way. Uh, but again, she they've sort of departed company, right? Uh, I'm trying to think of her co-stars in Spring Breakers, if there was anybody there of real note. 
I, I mean, yeah, this is the, this is what you get, I guess, as you point out when you say, oh, I don't know people who think of her as an actress, or I don't know people who think of her as a singer. You, a little bit, if it all goes well, create a category of your own. Yeah, I didn't, when I asked you that question, I didn't have an answer. I didn't have the list of names that you impressively just fired off so spontaneously. I would have had to take like five minutes and Google and think about it. And you came up with what, Miley and Demi Lovato, the Jonas Brothers. Um, And I agree with you, that is the cohort, right? There is that, you can look at that crew as a cohort. There's all, they all have a Disney association, yes? Absolutely. I would include now retroactively, although not at the time, uh, Cole and Dylan Sprouse. Mm -hmm. Cole Sprouse, of course, now is Jughead Jones. Uh, were Sweet Life of Zach and Cody. I think actually Tisdale is kind of in that mix, yeah. you know. Vanessa Hudgens then, if you were talking sort like uh, Spring Breakers. I Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Vanessa Hudgens was new as of High School Musical, whereas all the others were hustling for right. a long time. Is High School Musical, it's Disney, yes? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess like to me, you started bringing up all those names and again, like the Bing, bing, bing that came up to in my head was a Dis- like a Disney cohort of a specific generation. And all of them have pretty much stuck around. So this is the big secret about Disney is that I think anybody who you talk to would say they are known to be demanding bosses. They are exacting. They have high standards. You know, everything from the sort of notorious mid-aughts purity ring extravaganza to... There's a great story about Sarah Polly at age 12, uh, Road to Avonlea. Her childhood show had been picked up by Disney. She was at a Disney dinner, and she was 12 during the Gulf War and was wearing a peace sign to dinner, like a pendant, and they demanded that she take it off, and she refused, and she never worked for Disney ever again. Um, so, you know, they're, they have these high standards, but they are trainers of real talent, and the ones who make it are equipped for the long haul. I was a little bit joking earlier when we talked about, oh, there wasn't a Mickey Mouse Club for those Barney kids, but the Mickey Mouse Club does not lie. Like, again, these are the names we know, right? But Justin Timberlake and J.C. Chazes and Britney Spears and Carrie Russell and Christina Aguilera and Ryan Gosling and probably dozens of others. And I think you could even take it a generation back before uh, sitcoms were really training for sort of the the earlier version of all these people. But for example, Disney movies were where Jason Priestley and Justine Bateman would be paired up and get their starts. And Robin Lively, who was the older sister of Blake Lively, and Jason Bateman, I think, did like 18 Teen Wolf movies and so forth. Yeah, there's a certainly a... There's a culture there of if you're Disney, you're going to be put through your paces enough to have longevity if you make it, if you rise to the top. I guess I guess what's fascinating now that we've identified two cohorts of different generations and just as many names in both eras. Yep. The difference and the similarities are all there. Your your um your definition or your clarification of how Disney identifies talent and molds it and nurtures it, I totally I totally am down with. Um, as the times have changed with social media and how 
this generation of Disney stars relates to their fan base, it's a completely different way from Mickey Mouse Club, right? They weren't allowed to fall apart, not openly and not in the confessional way that we've seen all of these kids, really. Selena Gomez, Miley Cyrus, uh, Demi Lovato, the Jonas Brothers, they have all had elements during their career journeys of confessional marketing. And don't think that Disney isn't paying attention. I don't think, this is not where we started on a treatise of how to grow child stars, but uh, don't think that Disney isn't watching and watching how as each of them went through their own crisis, how it made them more beloved, not less. That's right. How it made them more endearing and appealing. And now we have to note the notable exception, who is, of course, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift did not go through that evolution. Taylor Swift did not have a public breakdown. You know, I used to work with somebody who really frowned upon, as he called it, bleeding in public. Yeah. Uh, And on the one hand, I'm not suggesting you have to bleed in public to get fans. On the other hand, that's all Taylor Swift does, right? Like that's her first three albums are bleeding in public, arguably. But it's notable to note that now Taylor Swift at 27, and by the way, I had to be corrected about her age just now. I thought she was older. uh, That Taylor Swift is being criticized for inauthenticity and uh, fakeness and, you know, kind of accusations that the Selenas and Demis and Miley's kind of dealt with a decade ago. Uh, So in a way, Disney is, forgive me, it's a little bit like the Ivy League. Not everybody who comes out is going to be the same level of successful, and success means something different to everybody. But if you have that kind of an education, you have the raw tools to be resilient, to create the kind of person or career that you want to be. Are we defending it? Look, uh, I'm certainly like, look, I think anybody that we, anything that we talk about that is extremely rigorous has benefits, right? You know, I think about a few years ago when we were all talking about Black Swan and all the ballerinas were like, oh yeah, it was terrible and abusive and, and hard and whatnot. And every single one of them would say it was terrible and abusive and hard. When I say every single one of them, every single one of the ballerinas who sort of gave interviews of that ilk, they also would say and I have discipline, and I have a work ethic, and I have a whatever that was drilled into me as a child, you know? So yeah, I guess in that way, there's, there's, it doesn't do to condemn it altogether. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what's been on my mind the whole time we're talking, and I expected to bring it up a whole different way. I knew we were going to kind of talk about Selena Gomez as eternally young, and I just last night finished watching season two of Stranger Things. Have you watched it? Haven't started. So, you know, the kids on that show still feel like kids. Mm-hmm. And one of them in particular is a young, cute kid, and he's really adorable and it works, but I don't know who he's going to be as an adult actor. I don't know who he's going to craft himself into. But... Now that we're sitting here talking, I kind of have a different idea. My question is whether or not the rigor of Stranger Things camp, which, you know, we have discussed here and certainly discussed on the blog about, like, 
maybe it's a little too much or depending on who your parents are, maybe it's a little too much too soon. But now I wonder whether the rigor of Stranger Things and the media attention and all the rest of it and how we felt like they were being seen too much last year, like they were kind of dancing at the top of the Emmys and Golden Globes and whatnot, is that a substitute for a Disney-style Ivy League boot camp? Well, uh, it's a good question because I asked you, are we defending it? Because as you said, there are certain positives you can extract from the experience. What to me is you can't deny though is that for all the ones in this cohort who have had their own crisis moments, Demi Lovato, Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, unfortunately it's… I mean, that's another conversation. It's almost, it's so, the girls are so vulnerable. I don't know, though. I think the Jonas Brothers would almost uniformly say that they had crises of their own, but they manifest in different ways. Okay. Because it's not about their body in the Mm -hmm. same way or, uh, you know, because it, it, they get to define themselves differently. So I both agree and disagree with you. So to go back to, yeah, so when we're talking about the ones who had their their crisis moments, Demi, Miley, Selena, the way they talk about Disney now is almost a rejection. Sure. Miley is ve- has very famously, very famously rejected Hannah Montana and has, the pendulum has swung back a little bit recently with the new album and everything. Demi Lovato, if you've seen the documentary and, and have heard, um, and she has been very, very candid about what it was like for her during Camp, uh, Camp, Camp Rock. Camp Rock. And, and Camp Rock too. Yeah. And what she put her body through and how she has been very honest about what that system and being in that system and how it happening to her at that age did to her. And of course, Selena, we know. So yeah, that I think that's why this is such a complicated issue because as you say, there is something that they do learn, a skill set, a determination, a work ethic in that time. And yet, at least in this cohort, and I wonder if Brittany would say the same thing, they don't look back on it with fondness. Or at least there is, they're able to say now or they do, they have revealed the dark side of it. How about that? Sure. But, you know, if I'm being cynical, I think that was always there. I think Judy Garland would look at the Disney kids and go, my God, you guys have it easy. Um, Which isn't to say let's throw our young people to the wolves, uh, but to say I think, look, the other thing is as we toss around sort of Ivy League euphemisms, these guys are essentially in college or post-college those years. That's when you walk around saying, like, my parents, man, they're, like, totally, like, um, you know, like, like, Visigoths. They they didn't expose me to any culture or anything. Um, for a lot of these guys, and because they are of a particular sort of late millennial birth, you reject, you know, Disney is the parents in that way. I would wager that if you spend another five to seven to ten years, they would have a much more measured reaction and say, yeah, it was too much, but also here's the part that I had in it. And, you know, particularly in the case of a Miley who was, I mean, Miley was Hannah Montana. They were synonymous. There was no escape there and there was nobody to share it with. Uh, I'm sure she would say, yeah, that was, you know, it was too much and it was too much pressure, but also 
here's what it gave me, not least of which is, you know, a shitload of financial security, which mm-hmm. I think becomes more uh, of an appreciation in your 30s, say, than before that. So uh, again, I guess I do sound like I'm defending it and I don't want to necessarily, but I'm aware that the pendulum, as you say, may swing back towards the middle a little bit more. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that we're going to say, oh God, you know, the, the 90s and aughts when, when Disney was maligning children left, right, and center. And I also think, as I say, they're watching, they're paying attention and they will be crafting uh, this level of awareness in the next cohort and the next one after that. What is the work of Selena Gomez going forward? 25, woman of the year. We've talked about that weird space where she occupies um, that youthfulness and yet being executive producer, telling us that she's in control of her the management of her brand in, in her direction. I mean, if I were her right now or if I were, you know, if she was like, okay, I need two minutes of duenna advice because that's a thing that happens all the time, <laughs> uh, I would say that her work and her job is to keep us guessing. We don't know who she is. And as long as you keep us guessing, as you were saying in terms of musical genres, you know, like I don't even know if she fits in one really, but the more you keep me guessing, the more things you can be. Uh, if I have you neatly in a box, then it's, well, you can be this and you can't be that. Uh, you know, God, how do I, like, you know, she's not Candace Cameron to make a real, you know, funny example, yeah. but I'm thinking of somebody who was known as youthful and is now like a mom. Uh, Candace Cameron works very hard, is very fine, whatever. Um, so I think that's her job, right, is to keep us guessing, is to shake it up. Uh, I'm reminded of Anne Hathaway, who, after a string of princess movies, chose Rachel getting married, which surprised the hell out of everybody, but then kind of threw her into a new category. And that was before or after she, like, let her tits bounce free in Brokeback Mountain. But those were calculated choices that I think did well for her. And I think that's the goal here is surprise. What do you think? So, you know that thing I always say about, yeah, um, like part of Britney Spears's it is that her fans, we, were willing to grow up with her. Like there were people who discovered Britney when they were 12. Yeah, but I don't know if they grew with her. I think that… Well, they were willing to follow her, is what I'm saying, as she got older. But I I don't know. Were they? I don't know the demos on people who buy the tickets to the shows, but I would say everybody I know who's seen Britney in Vegas is older than me. Um, Britney Spears is very close to my age, within a year or so. Mm-hmm. And I… But my feeling was always, oh, she's younger than me, like watching somebody. Right. So, I don't know. If… if Definitely, you need fans who will let you grow up, for sure. But I wonder whether we are looking down at that growing up with more generosity than people looking up. Oh, I, I, you know, I I work with a lot of of people who are in their early 20s, and they are devoted to her in a way that is almost not very objective. You know, there's the whole leave her alone movement and that, um, and, and, they are quite young or compared to us. Does and it compare to the way we talked past tense intentional about Madonna? Yeah, it does. It does compare. And it is in contrast to 
my favorite example is Avril Lavigne. Right. But, you know, as much as I agree with you about Avril Lavigne in terms of her fans didn't grow up with her, she also didn't try shit, right? She didn't do anything new. Avril Lavigne, to your exact point, stayed 12 in her converse from, like, womb to tomb, right? And the sound, too. Avril and I Le- think… I Sorry, I just need to disclaim that Avril Lavigne is not, in fact, dead. I think that was a, uh, a rumor <laughs> yes. for a while. It comes up a lot, actually. Like to my knowledge, Avril Lavigne is very well. Um, and I… To answer your question, I do think that Selena Gomez will be more Britney Madonna than Avril Lavigne. By, by all measures. But I also think that, you know, as you say, like, she, is she really a singer? Is she really an actress? I think the more that she keeps us guessing, the better off she is. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So last week, we opened Show Your Work with Meghan Markle. I mean, we opened, closed, and blanketed <laughs> it. Yeah. And it was, um, we recorded before the engagement was confirmed. And now we know Meghan Markle is marrying Prince Harry. And it's been an entire week of Meghan mania is what they're calling it in England. Um, and it's been great, you know, like, Listen, I am not complaining about this story. I love it so much. There are so many angles. Um, There's so many gossipy angles. There are so many, like, rich English, I call them old-timey pearl clutcher angles. Well, and you're not… Can't get enough. But you're not the only one who loves it. You know, um, uh, I have a, uh, a British woman of a certain age in my life uh, whom I adore. Hi, Donna. Uh, who is, you know, has been living in Canada for some dozens of years, but who is delighted, who loves a royal wedding. People are so happy. People are so happy and people are really fascinated. She's a fascinating woman and we're, we're getting a fascinating background. This is an actress. She's not British. She's American. There's all kinds of side angles. Um... And all kinds of great gossip. But to go back to the actress thing, there are people who thought that the royal family of England would never do a Monaco and have like a Princess Grace, a Grace Kelly situation. And here we are, like, chill out, everybody. Like, who you're, I know you're about to yell and say, don't compare Meghan Markle to Grace Kelly. Fine, I'm well, not. But I was just about to be that person, and I'm the last person who cares about sort of. But, you know, it's not even Grace Kelly, beloved screen icon. This is like, was on deal or no deal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, was on deal or no deal. And, of course, um, her final acting assignment gig. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, her final… acting assignment is one that we're going to get to and kind of what we're why we're here. But as we're talking, I'm realizing that something so interesting about why we're so fascinated is that 
Meghan Markle is an actress and therefore we know everything, but we know nothing. Nothing. Uh, we don't get the same types of tabloids as they have in Britain. But you know what I haven't seen is a picture of Meghan Markle on her grade 10 soccer team. I have not seen any pictures of Meghan Markle going to the prom with her prom date. Well, it's funny you mention that because we're we're recording this on Friday night and tonight, 2020, ABC will air a Meghan Markle special. I was interviewed for it. I don't know if I made the final cut, <laughs> but my understanding is that there is going to be all of that that you just mentioned. Like Meghan Markle, when she was a little kid um, in her soccer uniform, Meghan Markle as an adorable little kid going to, uh, I don't know, the Christmas market, I, whatever. But here's what's so amazing about that is that it took 2020 doing a special. And that's because Meghan Markle had this big public life. In a way, it's kind of clever because, you know, Kate Middleton, uh, what was leveled at her, uh, one of the things that was leveled at her is that she's so boring. She had nothing. <laughs> they were showing us the picture of her in her soccer uniform like on day three, because that's all there was, right? Right. And she like wandered to work and she wandered back from work in a series of outfits and there was nothing to talk about. So yeah, in a way, maybe it's super clever to be like, oh, Meghan Markle is on this show that is largely defensible or watched by the princes, apparently, or whatever. You know, it's it's kind of neat to be like, look, here's a whole bunch of stuff to look at. So nobody's... I don't know, digging up like inappropriate freshman year photos or whatever. And that's what we're talking about. The show that we have seven years to look at or we've had seven years to look at. Right. And so there was a headline that came out the other day basically saying that uh, the showrunner of Suits, Aaron Korsh, who um, I have heard speak, who's quite clever, uh, said that he took a gamble on Meghan Markle's love life. Uh, you know, he basically said, and he is clear that he, you know, I don't think she was confiding in him. I don't think she was, you know, sort of like lying on the floor with her feet up talking about Harry and how wonderful he was. But I guess the production team was aware a little bit of what was going on. And so they wrote out the character or, you know, kind of came at it with a, we're gonna write out the character. We're aiming down the pike of this season that way gambling that she wasn't going to be there. How did you feel when you read that? I a little bit felt like, how dare you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, well, based right. on what? Because can we just unpack it a little bit? Like, I know you 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 sort of went through the broad strokes of it. So what it was, was so um, November 2016 or October, November 2016, about a year ago, the world finds out that Meghan Markle is dating Prince Harry. Right. And Throughout the, like, you know, a few months pass and we we find out that they're very, very serious. They care about each other so much. Prince Harry releases this unprecedented statement defending her. Remember that letter? Yeah. And let yeah. me just uh, pause for a second. Uh, we have since learned, or maybe we knew, that when we found out they were dating, that was about six months in, right? They talk about having like six months of privacy or whatever it is. Yeah. Yes? Yes. Great. So the world finds out, we're assuming that also the showrunner Aaron Korsh finds out around the same time, um, if not maybe like a month before, but it's not like he was present when they were having secret dates and going to Botswana four weeks after meeting. No. And again, uh, I do not know the guy. I heard him speak. I saw him speak. 
He doesn't give me the impression of somebody who's spending like hours at a time scrolling through gossip. You know, I don't think he was waiting with bated breath. And again, I don't think he was gossiping with his actress at the catering table about how her relationship was going. He found out more or less when we found out. Sure. So you're the showrunner and this happens. Prince Prince Harry writes this very, um, (laughs) very, very sensitive and overwrought letter, which tells us all, okay, he's in. This is it. So now you're the showrunner for the show. And what he's saying is at that moment... I was planning the following season and I was looking at her character, Rachel, and I decided, even before she had decided, that I would write the storyline so that she wouldn't be coming back the season after. I decided, as you said, to take that gamble. Um, and you know what? If, if it didn't work out between her and Prince Harry, I could always reverse course, but it's better just to send her, like, send the ship away. Um, and... Yeah, my first reaction was, how dare you? You basically made a decision and anticipated her decision before she had a say in the decision. And then afterwards, because of course what he was saying was, I've just decided for you, Megan, you're not going to have a job on this show because um, I think you're going to leave this show and go and be with your prince. I've decided that. I've predicted it and I've made, and not only have I predicted it, I've made it a part of your work. So yeah, a part of me was how I dare you. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then the other part of me was, is this smart? <sighs> On whose part? I guess his. Right. To be ahead of the game, to be in control of your story, to be looking at, I mean, people in business do this all the time, right? Like, you're running a company and you're forecasting and you are, what's a hypothetical situation? You are the CEO, CEO of a company, you're forecasting, you're, um, you're looking at maybe one of your partners, partner companies that you're working with. You're like, mm, you know what? That guy's old. He's going to retire. I, I'm just going to assume that like next year, I bet you, he hasn't told me anything, but you know what? i he, I can see him. He just bought a property on a golf course in Florida. I can see his wife is never here in the city anymore. And yeah, he's retiring. This so I'm going to- taking on a real life. Right? So, and he, so he's deciding. So it is, if you talk, if you want to talk work to work, business to business, is that the equivalent of Aaron Korsh saying, I'm anticipating that one of my employees is going to be done and I'm just going to decide for her. I, I don't know. These are the dilemmas, but- you're closer to that world and this is what you deal with. Sure. And, you know, I, but I like the ways that you're talking about it. It's a little bit uh, being in, in, in debate team in junior high school and having to argue both the for and the yeah. against, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. To make such a unilateral decision that, oh, this is a big deal. She's going to be done with this show uh, is, is, it's bold. Mm-hmm. You know, especially because Suits was and is one of those shows that was, I think, relatively modestly conceived. Uh, it was like any number of another show, you know, any number of other shows on the USA Network or uh, other kind of networks of that ilk where you kind of know they're on, but they're not that big a deal. Suits kind of, you know, behemothed beyond what the conceptions of it were. And may I just say, it's about to get 
bigger because all the people who had no idea that Meghan Markle was on it are now going to go back and retroactively gulp down, mm-hmm. you know, seven seasons. I would predict that their ratings for the final season that she is in, which she just finished, are going to be astronomical. Yep. It's also worth pointing out, I don't know the airing schedule, but it's also worth pointing out that she may be married and in the monarchy while that season of Suits is right. still airing. Yep. That's that's shocking. That's yeah. inconceivable, you know. Now, reading between the lines, looking behind the scenes, who knows? Maybe she said to him, can you not write me any sex scenes this year because – you know, it's not going to yeah. look super great with my future father-in-law. I mean, or whatever. Yeah. Maybe maybe he received information from private channels. Who knows? But uh, so, you know, there's that. Uh, yeah. On the one hand, it feels like playing God a little bit. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you're always playing God with actors. You write them in and you write them out. You kill people because their storylines are up or because it will – help the main character in some way, uh, everybody is a little Lego tool. I'm very sorry to say that. But, you know, again, I just finished Stranger Things and uh, there was a surprisingly beloved character who bites it. And that is to make you feel. Uh, It's like too bad, you know. And so that character also gets only that many episodes and he's clearly done. He's bought it. He's out. So showrunners play God with actors all the time. Uh, I'm not sure, especially after a seventh season, that this is that scandalous. And then it comes to your point about is this just good practice? Uh, And, you know, the answer is always double-edged. Each actor has a different kind of contracts. We've talked before on this show about how, generally speaking, on U.S. network shows, uh, a character is signed for six seasons. The problem happens when you have somebody who's only supposed to be there for three episodes and they keep going on a, what they call a recurring character's contract and keep getting hired and then they're a huge, huge Mm -hmm. fan success and then you're like, well, now what do I do? I have to lock them in. I have to do something. Uh, An example of that is Melly Grant on Scandal was supposed to be a three-episode character uh, who then stuck around for seven years. There's another one that I was reading about recently, a man. Shonda Rhimes does that often, doesn't she? Uh, Yeah, Shonda Rhimes really gets attached to people and she brings them in different places. You know, another instance of that is Liza Whale, who Mm -hmm. was Paris Geller on uh, Gilmore Girls, which you still haven't finished. I mean, she's bowing her head in silent shame (laughs) or resentment, guys, one or the other. Uh, Was uh, on just a few episodes of Scandal, also bought it because that's what we're because that's what was required for the story, uh, but then was a regular on how to get away with murder. So you're always trying to keep up ahead of your actors. And when an actor comes to you and says, and usually they don't say, I might be marrying a prince. Usually they say, I shot a pilot or I whatever, if that's within their contractual rights to do. You have two choices. You can either hedge your bets that they're not going to get it, which usually is true, but if they do, then you fucked yourself. Or you hedge your bets that you better, like, you know, you better write them off, you better get rid of them. And to his point, if she's out of work and out of a love life, you can always get her back. To his point. 
which is what he said. Let me go here first. And if it doesn't work out, I can always write her back. I am God in that way. Well, and you're counting on the idea that she won't be available. But it floors me that I had not realized until right now that she's going to be on the air in suits with new episodes, not just reruns, while she's actually married into the monarchy. That is a new, it's a trip. That's a new, that's a trip and a new, a new level. Like on her wedding day, it could be the day that Suits airs an episode where she and her love interest on the show are making out. Sure. And like, look, they're like, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. And, and well, what I was going to say was like, maybe there are backdoor dealings that we know nothing about, right? Somewhere somebody at the palace is watching this and getting on to the broadcast, like, scheduler people and pulling in favors from so-and-so and, and, you know, like hoping against hope and making deals to make that not happen. But they don't know each other anything. Oh, no. If if she is – you mentioned it a few minutes ago. If she is the strategist that I think she is, and this week she's certainly shown us that there is some game here, that she may not in her role as a celebrity in Hollywood, in show business, been able to exercise. She is certainly using the full force of that right now. The interview was masterfully played. Their first walkabout was excellent. The wave, the freeze frame that everybody has taken is that one where she's like almost, oh, I don't want to say simpering because it sounds so rude, but uh, she's she's coy with the wave. Yes. You know? She is, she is, you know, it's only been a week, but she's killed it. She's shown us that there were so many sides to her that we didn't know that we couldn't have anticipated. So given that, what you said a few minutes ago, I feel like she would have been laying the groundwork herself too. Hey, can I just, you know, I, I'm not really sure about a love scene. I just want to make sure. Um, is this, hey, when we write this scene or when we do this scene, can we, is it darker? Is it? <laughs> but that's bold, man. Like that's, you don't, you know, you don't get to be that actor on every show. Uh, and I don't, you know, and I, I have a confession to make. I haven't watched enough Suits to know even if her character is that integral to to be able to ask those requests. Like, of course, big actors can make big asks, but also big characters can make asks like that. Um, it's very interesting. I guess we have to watch season seven of Suits. Oh, my God. If, like, if you <laughs> – look, this is the new binge watch. Is like, have to be ready. Also, do you think that she, like, wiggled out of her tweeting and promotional duties for season seven? 100%. Can you imagine just being like, oh – Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's 2 a.m. in London, but it's airing in the States. I better uh, log on and uh, I've built in your promotion with my engagement. Like, <laughs> right? Like the fact that I'm going to marry Prince Harry is enough promotion. As you said, a whole new legion of people is going to be downloading seasons one to six and then waiting for season seven. Like, I, I assume Suits airs all over the UK. If it doesn't, it is being sold to Every territory it has never been seen in before. Correct. She's the best thing to ever happen by leaving. (laughs) And finally, the biggest story coming out of Hollywood this week, Matt Lauer. Uh, Look, I mean, not to be uh, cynical about it, but I hope we're not scooping ourselves. That was the biggest story of last week. Uh, As you say, the Hollywood advent calendar of pervs. Is that, what's your phrasing? 
Hollywood Predator advent calendar, I think is what I call it. Like it's not slowing down. No. Oh, no. So, I wish it would. Like it's it's exhausting and it's so demoralized. Like, I, I, it's, it, it fucking sucks. Well, yeah. And it sucks to talk about it here every week. And yet we come to it every week because it is so inextricably linked with work, right? Like these are all stories that are overtly happening in and around and about work. Yes. And yet the other connection specifically that we have with this Matt Lauer story um, and show your work is we have talked about morning TV a lot on our podcast. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, and I think I've said this before, as somebody who doesn't watch morning TV, it is nonetheless absolutely fascinating because the players are huge and they are hugely well paid. The dramas are fascinating and none of it ever comes out on the air. Uh, you know, like one, one reason for that is that if you, if Jennifer Lawrence hates somebody, then maybe a year later she does press and says, oh, I hated that person and it's over. But the whole point of morning TV is that that team that's in front of you is supposed to be there for decades. Oh, it's eternal. Right. So um, one of the times we talked about morning TV was when we were talking about Megyn Kelly. And when we talked about Megyn Kelly and specifically what you need in morning TV is it is a very unique television um, brand, if, if you will, that requires a specific connection with its audience. It has to feel like a hug. Is, is, was that a line? Where did that come from, that line? I mean, it probably came from, and now it's time for our contractually obligated <laughs> plug. This is not a contractually obligated plug. This is out of sheer love. Uh, but uh, the number of times that I have read and relished and referenced Top of the Morning, uh, which is a book about the morning show wars and the Ann Curry ouster and... Uh, all the players therein, all the Couric's and Vieira's and everybody at CBS and Good Morning America and so forth. It is so, so delicious. It is so pertinent to what we're talking about right now. If you haven't read it, I strongly encourage you binge it over the holidays and probably it has to feel like a hug came from that book. So yeah, morning TV has to feel like a hug. And <laughs> I mean, this is, I don't mean to say it this way, but Matt Lauer has been given those hugs for, what, 30 years, right? I mean, a I long don't usually time. make these jokes, but, like, it's your gross uncle old dirty hug. Like, yeah. Now it is, right? Well, now that we know. even then. Sure. So, given that, as you talked about, the amount of money involved, it was or it is today, the Today Show, is NBC's most lucrative property. Easily. $25 million a year is what Matt Lauer was reportedly being paid. On top of, of course, his uh, perks and helicopters to the Hamptons three times a week and, uh, you know, exponential other travel benefits and so forth. So Matt Lauer popped out of the advent calendar. Right. And, you know, this is one of those ones that felt like to, you know, that felt like a not well-kept secret, right? Although I think it was couched in infidelity. I think a lot of people talked about, oh, he screws around on his wife. Was That's right. the way it was phrased. That's right. 
And so, as it has happened with every conversation about the predators coming out of Hollywood, there are so many ver- there are so many reverberating conversations, so many offshoots. Who knew? Who's complicit? Who enabled him? Who's to blame? Who's on side? Yeah, this, that, and the other. And you and I had an ad hoc conversation during the week uh, about how, in this case, almost more than any other the power structure of choosing young producers or young interns or people who wouldn't tell keeps it isolated from the people who might know, keeps it isolated from the big names to be able to say, oh, no, I never thought so. That was like I never saw anything untoward or whatever, right? That's insurance. Yes. That and a goddamn button under your desk. (laughs) Yes. And – Eventually, as it happens, the conversation has turned around to his colleagues. Well, again, yeah, because they're not just colleagues. They're like, you're morning best friends. You're like, your mom and dad. You're like, I don't know what vibe we're supposed to feel between morning couples, but yeah, they, they're they supposed to have this relationship. So, of course, you go, well, what are they saying? What do they think? What did they know? Mm-hmm. And you made up. And you made a really great point. We spoke very briefly on the phone. We were texting back and forth about this. And then I was like, huh, I don't get it. And then you called me and you're like, here, this is what I'm trying to explain to you. Um, and I, it's a little bit inside baseball, but I think that's what we're doing here because I think there it's, and I don't mean to sound like a jerk, like, hey, you people who work in TV don't really know how it works, but you kind of have to work in TV, especially in that kind of environment to appreciate the levels of communication, who communicates with who, and how the interpersonal relationships play out. So can you can you kind of explain what you your point was to me? So basically, uh, the reason that you – I think the reason you need to be in TV, I think this is very specifically about TV and about news and about daily. Um, this is about every single day running the same routine of getting the show together and getting it to air. And a show like the Today Show has a billion teams working to generate stories, but the on-air talent are on the ground every day. As you, an on-air talent, are on the ground every day doing the job every day. And so your day is, let's say, programmed to the minute, yes? Yeah. As are your colleagues, your fellow co-hosts on either of the shows that you're on, programmed to the minute. And sometimes you guys have other things thrown in and so forth. So my point was, if you walked down the hall and saw one of your colleagues talking to an intern or an associate producer or so forth, you would take pains not to pay attention to what that conversation is. Because God forbid you get drawn into something. What if it's they need you to do something else and you're like, meh, that's that person's problem. (laughs) Like you're rolling your eyes with, with horror here. Or if... Uh, if the conversation is them just sort of wanting to have a chat, well, you don't have a lot of time for a chat. And if the conversation is, you know, God, I don't know, something weird and personal, you would never know because you would take pains not to get involved. Well, that was when you really brought it home for me because I work on a live TV show um, and a taped television show. The live TV show that I work on is one hour a day, Monday to Friday. The Today Show is for the Matt Lauer portion, two hours, live, seven to nine. Um, And then I believe Hoda and Kathy Lee take over from nine to ten. Sure. So it is 
an intense seven to nine for them, which means they probably have to get to work at about four Yep, uh, to work on the day's stories. When nine o'clock wraps, then you're either doing voiceovers for the next day's show or some prepackaged stories for a show that's three days from now. There are all kinds of marketing and brand partnerships uh, opportunities. Sometimes they'll have to shoot a commercial, uh, bumpers. They'll have to show previews for, I don't know, something that's going on. I mean, it is not just like being on TV from seven to nine. No, there's travel briefings. There's, hey, can you take on this other thing because so-and-so has blah, blah, blah. And it's always, always, always last minute. Right. So my point is, you are 100% right. I lock myself into my office and I try not to walk the halls unless I have to pee. When I go pee, it's phone in hand. I walk to the washroom looking at the phone, partly because I need to look at the phone to look at what I'm missing and like respond to texts and emails, but partly because I can't be stopped because the minute I get stopped, it's five minutes I might lose here talking to somebody about whatever, and then I lose five minutes on the blog. So my point is when people say, did Savannah know? Well, I don't know. Like to me, I can picture Savannah Guthrie walking down the hall, hurrying to her own office to get back to her own emails and really not wanting to engage anybody else. So when you say, hey, if you walk by a Matt Lauer talking to an intern or a Matt Lauer talking to someone, it's, if it were me, I would be like, oh, corner of my eye, Matt's talking to somebody. I need to get back to my office right now, right now, right now. Well, and furthermore, uh, for people who don't know, we met first when I was a producer on a show that you began to be on would make my job more difficult if the on-air talent are talking before the show. I need you each to be doing your own thing longer uh, in order to get all the material through that you need to get done to get the show on the air. So what we come to here is it's entirely feasible that other uh, hosts certainly and colleagues wouldn't necessarily know that this was going on, right? And this is before we ever say that any kind of Hollywood predator uh, takes pains not to be seen philandering, harassing, or worse. Uh, he was apparently paranoid and, you know, hired contacts to set, kind of tip him off about things like that, which is what makes the context of of an email that we got even more interesting. And yeah, and we, we mentioned the, there are so many different kinds of conversations around these stories. Who knew? Who do we get mad at for knowing? Um, who enabled? And generally, I want to clarify that the way that we've approached these stories is really to interrogate the power structures, the ones who actually can make a difference. Because let's face it, even if many of his co-hosts knew about it, what could they do? Uh, sure. They could complain uh, and not be heard. They could lose their jobs. They could whatever. Right. But I think we have just created a case that is plausible, if not pretty probable, that they probably didn't know. I might even argue that in many cases, they couldn't have known. For example, uh, I was a little bit frustrated with a an Instagram post from Padma Lakshmi, who, you know, had been on the Today Show dozens of times, saying like, in all the times I was there, I never saw anything untoward, you know, and she goes on to say, but we need to believe women. But of course you didn't see anything. Like, again, a daily show is a well-oiled machine. 
uh, you know, she didn't have an office there. She wasn't passing in the corridors to the bathroom seven times a day. Of course you didn't see anything, which again leads us to uh, an email that we got. So now it's, it's you know, they're beyond that conversation about who knew and what did they know, it's now about how they react. So we got an email from a reader um, and uh, uh, they write, there's a culture of silence and enablers surrounding sexual harassment and assault. But we need to call out how other powerful people, sadly other women, react to the news that their friends and colleagues are predators or engage in predatory behavior. Because this reaction and concern for the perpetrator is harmful in so many ways. Kathy Lee Gifford's call for grace, humility, God, and forgiveness shouldn't be the first line of reasoning. I'm seething and I can't manage a coherent and eloquent response right now, but I wanted to pass it along. Um, and so, you know, they continue to say, uh, we as women pick up the breadcrumbs after being silenced, push out, pushed out, hushed up, and asked to get in line and play by the rules. We must constantly push back against these gendered boundaries of how we speak up and who we stand for. Enough with the caregiver nurturer cloak that Kathy wears. I want nasty. I want an army. And I'm tired of being asked to think about other people's feelings. So just to go back to this, this was uh, in response to Kathy Lee Gifford's, um, you know, she and Hoda Kotb do the nine o'clock hour of the Today Show. And on the day that it was announced that Matt Lauer was terminated by NBC for inappropriate sexual misconduct and behavior, one of the first things she said was she's sad and that she feels bad for him and that she wants to approach the situation with forgiveness and et cetera. And this did, this in addition to this reader, this did, a lot of people didn't enjoy this response. Well, I just want to be like, you know, that's exactly the summary, but I need to read verbatim uh, a bit about what she, what she said. Um, she said, and this is uh, an excerpt, she said, I don't feel that Matt has betrayed us in any way at all, but when I found out that my husband had betrayed me, you question your own judgment. Uh, you say, was everything a lie? And I think we have to very much fight against that, that the man we know and loved and adored was the man we loved and adored and continued to. I texted him this morning and said, I adore you and no person is perfect in this world. Nobody is. And then she goes on to talk about like the glory of God and so forth. So I wanted to read that because that's a little bit even more bald than saying we should approach this with forgiveness and eyes wide open and whatever. Uh, she's basically saying this is per not a different person in my eyes because he hurt other people. And I think there are people who really want to believe that mm -hmm. a lot, mm -hmm. often. Mm -hmm. And Lena Dunham, that was Lena Dunham's problem. A few weeks ago, uh, as you know, unless you were like trapped upside down in a rain barrel, Lena Dunham uh, basically came out against the accuser of one of her friends and said, this is a case that has been misreported because of what I know about my friend which is preposterous and probably very human to, you know, feel like because I know somebody, then they couldn't have done this. But, you know, I thought it was interesting that Kathy Lee Gifford talked about her husband cheating on her because God knows infidelity is at least as common as how much we talk about it. But if you 
can't know your own spouse to that degree, how are you going to say, oh, I knew my colleague. I know they wouldn't do this. And I think that was a very astute point that she was bringing up that got lost in all the other fumbling. It's not unlike the point Sarah Silverman made much more, like much more eloquently when she gave a comment about Louis C.K. And she probably has had the, had the right balance of, I'm very sad because he's my friend and I know him to be a nice person to me, but these are the things that he did. And she named them. She named the things that he did very specifically. Um, And then she said, but you know what? The time isn't, the time now is not to talk about how I feel or if I'm sad. The time is to believe these women and to focus on their stories. So some of what Kathy Lee was trying to do was shared in, in that Sarah Silverman comment. It was just mixed up with, I texted him and I want to, him to know that I forgive him. And I, you know, he's, he's still the person who was nice to my face. And it's not that I'm defending her, but I, I will say for all of these women who have to go to work and all they wanted was to go to work that day, and do their jobs, part of these women's work now is to, in addition to, it's not easy hosting a live television show at like ass in the morning, is to try to come up with some sort of articulate, eloquent response that will satisfy the feminists and the fans and the executives. Remember the executives who pay them. Oh, absolutely. And who, by the way, are Making sure, are you going to say something? What are you going to say? Yeah. How's it going to be? Do you remember Kathy, uh, sorry, do you remember Kelly Ripa um, after the huge controversy with Michael Strahan and she like went on holiday, she wasn't on the show for a few days and the first day she came oh, back, she, yeah, and she, she addressed the camera and she, like, it was amazing. She actually said like a comment about them, there being snipers. She was like, there are probably snipers. It was a joke. It was a joke. But what she was trying to get at was the entire network was like on her that morning. Right. Because she had not, uh, she had taken leave, you know, without saying. She basically had had a temper tantrum. Yes. uh, Because she was mad and she left and it was brilliant. Yes. uh, Because she got her story out there, which in her case was the gold. Yes. Um, yeah. And then she said, yeah, oh my God, everybody probably wants to kill me. Yeah. But what can they do? Because- Snipers are pointed at my head right now. Right, right, right. But they needed her back there so she can say anything she wants. However, generally with something like this, there are going to be lawyers standing next to executives, standing next to bosses who are, you know, clutching stress balls in one hand and your entire paycheck for the next five years in the other going, what are you going to say? Say it properly. Having said that, I think that you know, what this speaks to is a bigger problem. It's really interesting, actually, that we hear Sarah Silverman or Kathy Lee Gifford or, uh, you know, Pamela Adlon or whomever talking about, uh, I feel like this about my friend because I think that this is what fans are craving, right? This is something that came up first with The Cosby Show. If we now know who Bill Cosby is and was, can we still enjoy the Cosby show? Can you still like the art, the product, the whatever of that person? I think it came 
roaring down for a lot of dudes, a lot of women, uh, with Louis C.K., with somebody who seemed like he was on our team. Can you still like him? Was any of it true? As she says, like, you think you question everything. And so I think that, to your point, while I don't support anything that she was saying, and I don't think we need to be leaping to his defense hours after the fact on the network that he works at, uh, I do think that she's probably speaking to the fears of a lot of people who want to know, okay, it's been 20 years that Matt Lauer has been coming into my home in the mornings. Can I still like him? Or do I have to, you know, do I have to hate him because of this? Or like, what about that feeling that I felt when we saw him at the Olympics or, or where in the world is Matt Lauer? Am I still allowed to like him? And, and this is the added layer of frustration and like, to me, unfairness about all of these situations, because you are not only put in a sh- shitty position when Matt Lauer presses the button under his desk and locks you in his room and, um, you know, does his thing. If you're lucky, he, uh, and I say this obviously sarcastically, if you're lucky, he only pulls out his dick. If you're not lucky, he leaves you passed out on the ground in his office and a colleague has to come by to um, hold you up and take you to the nurse. I think it was maybe like, yeah, uh, yeah. That was reported in the New York Times, by the way. Um, so you could be hit one of his victims that way. If you're very, very fortunate, you are not one of his targets, but you get to be his colleague with three minutes to go before airtime, you have to read a statement about him being terminated. That's fun. And then you get to be somebody who has to react to the statement, um, which is awesome too. And then you have to be accused of supporting him and not being on side. So these are the choices that women in the NBC workplace, but probably so many workplaces are making. To your point, Duanna, you have to choose whether or not you are a fan or a feminist. Can I continue to like the show as a fan or do I have to let my feminist flag fly and cut off and reject and cancel this show? Or you have to choose between being a friend and a feminist. Can I look back on my 20 years of memories with this person and they were wonderful and lovely and I got to spend Thanksgiving and Christmases with this person? Or am I a feminist? I have to reject him completely. It's so unfair that over and over again, primarily women have to make these crazy choices. Um, because of people and men, powerful men who are enabled by even more powerful men. I just find it so unfair. And maybe for that reason, and maybe I'm too close to it because I'm kind of in the business of this, I don't want to criticize anybody or any of these women who are in this position. I don't think that's the right conversation. I think the right conversation is who was the executive in that office who let him get away with this for so long and continue to cut that paycheck? Because, you know, if I had all they wanted to do was go to work. Well, of course, the other thing uh, that becomes obvious the more you read about uh, the report in the New York Times and other sort of corollary reporting that is coming up is that this was, they made a great point of saying this is the first complaint, uh, but by no means was it the first time they heard about behavior like this. And they very obviously looked the other way. I really like your point about not putting the onus on any woman who has been put in this position through some ridiculous machination by being that person's colleague, 
God, by being that person's friend, by wanting to maintain what might have been a powerful friendship. Uh, yeah, these are not the people to blame here. And, you know, a month ago, it seems impossible, but a month ago the conversation was, well, why didn't women tell other women? Like, why did they make other women be victimized? Uh, which I assume we've dispensed with by now. But again, your point is well taken, that in every situation, these are men putting women in these positions. And you don't need to castigate people for choosing, frankly, as you used to say in your younger days, shit or diarrhea. I And I have to say, maybe the reason I'm so worked up about this is not only because I'm a little bit in this business, but because I actually did find myself at moments not loving the way Savannah Guthrie announced that news. The tone and... I started comparing it to the way Gail King did it when Charlie Rose was dismissed. And I thought Gail did it so much better and she was so objective and she focused on the women. And I thought Savannah was so much focusing on Matt and the same with Kathy Lee. And then a few hours later, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, it wasn't so much a personal evolution, but um, a realization that all of us have been caught in a workplace where you go to work and unfortunately you get put in positions where you don't want to do what you're being asked to do and all you want to do is do your work. And so it's a little bit of a calling out for myself too. You can't, I mean, these are reactions and it was, it came out and it, there was a self-correction and I get it. But if I was having that reaction, I can only imagine how many people out there are having that reaction and how we, how we, massage and redirect that reaction to what really needs to be interrogated and challenged. Does that make sense? It really, really does. And, you know, I had a similar experience recently in a, in a kind of different way. But I think that if there's anything that can be taken from this, God, everything is a cliche, but this garbage fire of revelations of, of each repugnant person, it's that you get to realize and challenge issues within yourself. I was reading something recently about, uh, in the wake of the Louis C.K. truths, uh, there was an article written uh, by a woman who talked about, uh, you know, the realities of being a female comedian. And we'll link to this article in the podcast. Uh, we'll link to this article uh, in the in the podcast notes on the blog. And she was talking about all the ways in which female comedians are kind of, you know, set back from the beginning and talked about one of the things that was interesting was that she talked about how women are the only comedians who aren't allowed to make fun of the stuff that is unique to them. So for example, there's a real stigma against female comedians who talk about like boobs or periods or whatever. And I remember always thinking that, oh yeah, like if somebody's talking about that, that's not a real comedian. I'm like, sorry, what? Dudes talk about their dicks all the time in comedy. It is considered to be the highest level of comedy. There are comedians, you know, Chris Rock or Michael Che talk about race all the time in comedy. It is their brand. It is what they know. It is what they do to make it funny. But women are told that they can't talk about what they know. Anyway, my point here is that I was aware of my own bias, that I didn't know that I had been judging women by a standard set by men. And mm -hmm. that to me is exactly what you're talking about, that mm -hmm. uh, there are invariably uh, those bosses that you talk about behind the scenes 
are men who are standing over a Savannah Guthrie or a Gail King or whomever saying, I need you to say this and make it clear and sincere and and not associate any tarnish with the network, but also like keep your nose out of it and blah, blah, blah. And I say when it's good enough. And it's an impossible hoop to jump through. You're exactly right. I think I want to leave on an article or a story that you alerted me to and subsequently um, many readers of the blog uh, sent us notes about. Um, and she has since written um, the full article about this um, at the establishment. And this is, um, this is Ijeoma Oluo's story. And she uh, was she writes about being contacted by USA Today. And USA Today was doing an opinion piece about due process. An editorial, I think they, mm-hmm. they would clarify, like yeah. set by the editorial board, which is different right. than the news part of their organization. Right. So this editorial that they were going to publish was going to be in defense of due process. They were going to say, of course, we want to believe women, and of course, this is terrible and sexual harassment is bad, but we have to believe in the system of due process. They contacted um, uh, Ijeoma to write the counter, and they wanted to dictate to her what the counter argument to due process would be. Basically, they asked her to write a piece that was um, that that would say, I don't believe in due process. Due process sucks. Yeah, she clarified. So if you don't know Ijeoma Oluo, God, read everything she's ever written. She wrote kind of the definitive piece on Rachel Dolezal a few months ago uh, and has been writing really uh, eloquently and also very personally about uh, the advent calendar of of uh, Hollywood predators. You know, uh, one of her articles recently that she wrote uh, had a title akin to "So you've harassed someone. Now what?" Mm-hmm. She does not damn. She is uh, straightforward. It's a great read. So they were coming to somebody decorated. This is not, yeah. you know, a a a college senior that they were asking to say, "No, I think we should throw innocent people under the bus." They were coming to a voice. A champion. That's right. A known yes. champion. And they were putting words in her mouth. And to go back to why I'm bringing this up right now, what they were trying to do or what she realized that they were trying to do was they were trying to set up a narrative which once again favored the perpetrators. That's right. And the reason I bring this up is because a few minutes ago, you talked about those executives standing behind these female anchors saying, what are you going to say? How are you going to say it? You can say whatever you want, just don't say this. Right. Just make sure you don't implicate this, X or Y. Z is fine, but stay away from A, B, and C. Because in shaping the story of how these women will speak, they are setting up protection for themselves. And it's happening, as we're seeing, on every level of media, even media we thought would be trustworthy, liberal, um, not racist or Nazis or not Breitbart, at USA Today. Sure. And then they can make themselves look reasonable. And the outlier voice, the crazy woman who has these crazy opinions, is just some woman. If somebody misspoke, 
if a Savannah Guthrie or a Gail King or anybody else went off book, they'd be fired a few weeks later, you know for sure. For some reason or another, made up, oh, this and that and the other. Assignments, yes. new divisions. What is it they said about Ann Curry? Operation Bambi. Oh, I so much about Ann Curry we need to unpack. But like, I mean, for the purposes of this conversation, yes, it's always the due process as this writer argues, is always in favor of the people who are, have always been in favor. I don't want to spoil your read of the article, but as she says, either in the article or in one of her tweets about it, due process, women would be happy with any process. And on that note, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you for all of your emails, all your story suggestions. We love them. We love arguing about them and debating them back and forth. We talk about you when you're not listening, you guys. <laughs> and continue to uh, leave your comments on iTunes and Google Play. Um, we have tried to include a reader email or several in each episode of uh, Show Your Work Season 2 so far. So please keep sending us your thoughts. We want you to be part of this and to engage us and to, you know, really poke us, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The more we agitate, the better it gets. Thanks so much. Back next week. Bye. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.